Thank you, Jerry, for that prayer. That was awesome. I love to, I love to hear Jerry pray. We get to spend a lot of time, a lot more time together these days. Uh, he, uh, he's teaching me how to run, um, although he often leaves me in the dust. You know, he'll start off talking with me and running along, and uh, we'll be doing well, and and we hit, we hit this first hill over there where the travel camp is. And, uh, and I always, I, you know, I'm, I'm, it's still my goal to run up that, that hill without stopping and keep running. But I usually stop somewhere along the way and have to catch my breath and keep going. But, uh, yeah, he'll, uh, he'll stay with me for a while. And then before I know it, you know, he's way up there. And he'll look back and say, well, where'd he go? But uh, Jerry and I have some great times of fellowship together. And, I appreciate you, brother. Really do. And uh, so I want to know. Uh, we got some probably some people out there that uh, have been complaining about uh, all the cold weather and wishing it would warm up and everything. Okay, you got what you wanted. Okay, your prayers have been answered. Are you happy now? Now this is a beautiful day, isn't it? Gorgeous weather, and uh, even though it's a little bit warm, and. Uh, you know, heat doesn't bother me too much. I grew up in Florida, lived in Texas for about eight years, deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan, lived in Missouri, and so I know all about the heat. But uh, believe it or not, growing up in Florida, I still, I, I kind of like the changes of season. I like the cold weather because it gives us something to look forward to. Uh, today we're going to be talking about why I preach the cross. This is a story about a hillbilly preacher in the South being prophetic in leadership and preaching. It is challenging, but it can also be transforming. Take the case of the once racially segregated churches in South Carolina, USA. One of the Baptist churches there appointed a new preacher who, though was very uneducated, understood the gospel. Most pastors would recoil at his preaching method. For his first sermon, he simply flipped open the Bible and uh, started preaching the words his finger landed on, Paul's words to the Galatians that in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. In 1950s southern USA, where churches were racially segregated, the application was obvious, at least to this preacher it was. There shouldn't be black churches and white churches. There should just be churches made up of black and white. The deacons weren't so appreciative of this message. And they demanded that their new preacher preach something different. Well... The preacher did do something different. He fired the deacons, and he kept on preaching his message of racial unity. Many people left the church. His already small congregation became even smaller, dwindling to just four people. But then it started to grow, bit by bit, little by little, until it included people of all races. One congregation member was a lecturer in English literature at the University of Southern Carolina, 
who would drive 70 miles just to listen to this uneducated preacher. His reason, and I quote, because that man preaches the gospel. In this passage of Scripture found in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 17 through 25. I know we have listed 17 through 23, but uh, I was wrong. Sorry, Rochelle. Gave you the, I didn't give you all the verses, but we'll be going through verse 25. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses, starting in verse 17. If we would, let us, uh, let us stand as we give reverence to the reading of God's holy word this morning. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the gospel preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And may God bless the reading of his holy word. You may be seated. The truth does not make God responsible for the perishing. They perish because of their own sin and of their own stubborn impenitence. On the other hand, those who believe and are saved are those who are called of God. Those of you that have received the message of the cross and have believed upon it, it says in, in uh, uh, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that if we confess, confess I'll get that out one of these times, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in our hearts that God raised them from the dead, we shall be saved. Not anything that we have done, there's not anything that we can do or act or say that can make that happen. It is simply a profession of faith. It is believing in God and, and receiving His gift. And so, it is this power of salvation to those who believe. An angel appears to a faculty meeting and tells the dean that in return for his unselfish and exemplary behavior, the Lord will reward him with his, with his choice of infinite wealth. In, in uh, door number one, infinite wealth. Door number two, infinite wisdom. And door number three, 
infinite beauty. Without hesitating, the dean selects infinite wisdom. Well, of course, he's a dean. And he's a uh, professor of higher education. Of course, he's going to choose infinite wisdom. Done, says the angel, and disappears in a cloud of smoke and a bolt of lightning. Now, all heads turn toward the dean, who sits surrounded by a faint halo of light. At length, one of his colleagues whispers, Say something. The dean looks at them, and he says, I should have taken the money. In Proverbs chapter 1, it says that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. Now, if you want to turn to that passage and, and uh, put something, put a piece of paper in there and hold that place, we will uh, refer to that in a moment. But I also want to turn to, uh, and, and keep your place in 1 Corinthians, I turn to Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. And we're going to look at the life of a man that was, had given and had set his heart upon wisdom and knowledge and learning, King Solomon. And we've heard a lot about him. Uh, if you've gone to, you know, went to Sunday school growing up and learned about Solomon, you knew that he was a man uh, that was well-known and, and uh, famous for that one time when the two, uh, two mothers bring a child and, and they want uh, King Solomon to decide uh, which child uh, this, uh, or which mother this child should go to. And then he makes a decision in his wisdom, in his great wisdom that God had given him. He, he says, well, let's, let's uh, cut the baby in half and give one half to the mother and one half to the other mother. And the real mother stepped forward and said, no, no. And so we've heard that story and we've heard about King Solomon and we know that uh, he's also infamous uh, for all the wives that he had and, and all the great building projects that he was a part of. But let's look at these verses and, and see what King Solomon had to say about wisdom and knowledge. And he says, starting in verse 12, he says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. So he was a preacher. And he was a king of Israel. This great man. And he says in verse 13, is, I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. He had, his passion was wisdom. God gave him a choice, just like the professor, the dean. He, he gave him a choice of all the things that, that you could have. What do you want, King Solomon? I will give it to you. And he asked for great wisdom. And God had granted it to him. And so King Solomon had set his heart. His passion was to learn and to grow and to gain as much knowledge as he could. And at the beginning of his, his ministry, and the beginning of his, his time as king and, and, and being this wise man, he says, remember in Proverbs chapter 1, he says, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. 
He understood what it meant that, that the, the full, whole purpose of his life, the whole purpose of his being created, the whole purpose of Israel was to worship a holy God, to have a relationship with a holy God. And he said the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. It was a relationship with God. So he understood that. But then we look in these verses. We see a different Solomon than what we saw in chapter 1 of Proverbs. He says, I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of men by which they may be exercised. See, Solomon was not saying... And the Bible doesn't say that wisdom in and of itself is a bad thing, that, that the pursuit of knowledge and higher education is not evil. Because it is wisdom, it is the science itself, and the, uh, 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 all that knowledge and, and, uh, and truth comes from God. God created science. And, and, and if we talk to, and I've talked to uh, doctors in the hospital that are Christians, and, uh, and they'll tell you that their pursuit of science pointed them to God. And, and see, that is supposed to be, and, and, and I think that, uh, that the King Solomon, he started off understanding that wisdom and the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom was a means to the end. But then towards, his, uh, towards the end of his life and all of his accomplishments and all of the things that he did and all the building projects and the pursuit of knowledge and the reading of many books, knowledge and wisdom became the end to the means. And he had lost his sight on what was important. And go on in verse 14, it says, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed, and he had seen a lot, and all is vanity in grasping for the wind. All is vanity in grasping for the wind. See, he had, he had set his heart on wisdom. He had set his heart on accomplishing great things in his life, but towards the end of his life, he realized that it, it did not give him meaning and purpose in his life. Grasping the wind. Now, can you imagine? I mean, you're trying to get a picture of that. You know, imagine sitting on the beach, and the wind's blowing into your face, trying to grab a hold of the wind. you imagine seeing somebody trying to do that? You'd think they're nuts. They're trying to grab the wind as it blows into their face, and trying to get a hold of it, and manage it. It's meaningless. It's, it's foolishness. And he says, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. And in verse 16 he says, I communed with my heart, saying, look, I have attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in, in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge. I communed with my heart. I mean, he, he, he communicated in his own heart. He basically is telling himself, you know, I've done great things. He was bragging. I've done all this stuff. But then he says, it's meaningless. It's madness. And I set my heart 
to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases in knowledge increases sorrow. Then he goes on in chapter 2, talking about how life is meaningless without God. And I find it interesting in his life that he starts off understanding what the end state was, that it was a relationship with God, that it was communion with God. And then he got lost along the way. And then he comes full circle and he realizes all that I had accomplished, that I thought was good, that I thought had meaning and purpose, was just a grasping of the wind. It was all vanity. But what true purpose and meaning of life is having a relationship with a holy God. Is it not ironic, turning back to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, looking at verses 23 and 24, is it not ironic that God has chosen something as the cross, a symbol of defeat and shame, that he has chosen this cross, the symbol of defeat and shame, to, to defeat sin and death itself? Is it not ironic? Wow. The cross cannot be defeated, for it is defeat. We cannot in all of our wisdom understand the mysteries of the cross in our own reasoning. The Bible says that the the natural man cannot understand the spiritual things of God for they are spiritually appraised. We cannot attain the wisdom of God on our own accord. We cannot understand the mysteries of God and, 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 and and we cannot understand the power of the cross on our own accord, for they are spiritually appraised. It is not until we are willing to confess the Lord Jesus as our Lord and Savior and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, and and when we do that, that God gives us His gift, free gift of eternal life, and that He cleanses us and forgives us of our sins and gives us eternal life and gives us, renews us in a right relationship with Him and that we're filled with His Holy Spirit. And that and then, and only then, as we read His Word, that we are able to understand the mysteries of the Gospel. But I'll have to say that even as a Christian for many, many years, for decades, I have been a Christian, that I still marvel at the mystery of the cross, that I cannot completely fathom or understand the cross and what it means and the power that it has. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a preacher and a theologian who spoke out against the Nazi regime in World War II, said this about the cross. Listen closely. The figure of the crucified invalidates all thoughts which take success for its standard. The world tries to justify their lives by saying, you know what? I'm a good person. 
My whole life has been about helping others. I have gone to school that I might be a doctor or, a, uh, you know, I, I became a fireman. I'm a police officer. And my life is about saving lives and helping others. Doesn't that account for something? Doesn't that mean something? Well, of course it does. But it doesn't save us. It doesn't forgive us of our sins. God sets the standards so high that lust is adultery and hate is considered murder. There is nothing that we can do that will ever be enough. It says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No matter how hard we try, no matter how much we learn, no matter how much we do in this life, it will never, ever be enough to cleanse you of your sins and to set you right with God. Never be enough. But yet, the good news is, says the wages of sin is death, eternal death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When we think of those first verses that we all have sinned, well, hey, well, if we've all messed up, we've all screwed up, and the wages of sin is death, it just it seems, it seems hopeless, doesn't it? Seems like, well, what, what is there to look forward to? But if we look at the last part of that verse, but the free gift of God is eternal life God offers to you through His Son. And as we look at Solomon's life, can't help but think that God gave him a vision of what was to come. That he would send his own son, Jesus Christ, one day that would free us of our sin and give us new life. One who could heal us of our broken hearts. Heal the brokenness in your life. Heal the pain in your life. To forgive you of whatever it is that you have done. The cross invalidates any thought which takes success for its standard. As the worship team comes forward, prepares for the last song, I want to share this home with you and leave on this thought. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, sure, never till my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to change me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me into despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. 
Alas, I not what I I knew not what I did, but now my tears are vain. Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I the Lord have slain. A second look I gave, which said, a second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I die that thou mayest live. Thus, while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace, it seals my pardon too. With pleasing grief and mournful joy, my spirit now if filled, that I should such a life destroy, yet live by him I killed. Let us pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the agony and the pain that you felt on that cross. Because it was on that cross that you freed me and freed all of us, those who believe, freed us from our sin and our pain and our sorrow and have given us new life in you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.